The tangled roots and creepers, the bark preserved as firm as ever, the leaves that decorated, the insects that populated, the feathers having flown then fallen, the fish turned flat. The algae from sea to museum, the bone from body to corpse, the stone encasing everything. I was kind of struggling there to say the word flat because we obviously have our own uh, individual pronunciation of it that <laughs> is just instinct to me now, unfortunately. But yeah. if I said it on the podcast, people would just think I am English is my second language, which it, it isn't. <laughs> I saw a post on Instagram last night. And it was like best friends have probably just their own set of language, and we most definitely do. If we ever let it leak onto the podcast, we might get some concerning messages are you guys all right i didn't realize you were not english well one of us is not all right yeah one of us is very very sick very sick so this episode might be a little bit shorter than usual that's kind of our excuse for that because alicia has oh no she doesn't have covid i don't have covid i have sickness mystery sickness (laughs) um so if she's sounding slightly more incoherent than usual that's the reason that poem hopefully sounded coherent it kicks off the 10th episode in our nature semester today we're talking all about as you phrased it last week archaeology evolution Mm -hmm. history but archaeology is not correct because the right word then paleontology archaeology is for human activities i wanted to talk about archaeology and paleontology what does archaeology have to do with the next semester though guess what aaron i'm gonna tie it all in okay well anyway this poem it was it was kind of just like fossils aren't they cool isn't it cool how things go from a baby to a really big thing breathing sometimes moving often eating, photosynthesizing, etc., and then dying, and then very rarely, because it doesn't usually happen, fossilizing. Yeah. And then later perhaps being mesmerizing. To, wow, you're know, gracing I us with another I don't poem. Know, I don't know. Wow. I don't know. But it also reminded me of a movie that we watched very recently in cinemas. This is for the Solar Scene Recommends uh, segment of today's yeah. episode. Brand new, which is called Geographies of Solitude. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? I'd love to talk about it. It was funny because the day after you said, I really want to find, because it was on the day before New Year's Eve, so yes. it was the 30th. Yes. You said, next year I want to find a new favorite movie. And I realized, I think I might have accidentally found a new favorite movie. <laughs> like, it was wonderful. It was cinematic. It was a bit art housey. They had, okay, this is horse dung laid on this. Yeah. Maybe we should give film. some context. <laughs> <laughs> so there's horse dung. It's artsy. There's... Maybe we okay. should explain it a little bit. <clears throat> Geographies of Solitude is a film, a documentary-style film, all shot on 35mm? I think it was 35, yeah. Some, some, some millimeter. millimeters film. <laughs> <laughs> and it is set on an island 140 kilometers off the coast of Nova Scotia, a crescent-shaped island that is, let me get it, one mile wide by 40 miles long, and it is home to the Sable Island horses. Yeah, Sable Island is... Is kind of mythological to people who grow up in Nova Scotia. I'm not sure if people outside of Nova Scotia even know about it, or certainly outside of Canada, but it's just this this fairy tale place that's always well not always, it's like told to us a couple of times in school, like, oh by the way, there's this um idyllic island just off the coast of Nova Scotia. Where no one lives. Well. Well. We thought nobody lived there. Yeah. <laughs> but the film is is in some sense a landscape, hence the name geographies, but also in some sense a portrait of the naturalist. Um, who kind of studies there, her name's Zoe Lucas, and she has lived alone, It's also it made it seem, or close close to alone, on Sable Island for roughly 40 years. Mm-hmm. And so 
I think it was like you were looking into your future a little bit. And that's why you say maybe uh, it's your favorite movie. It just was, yeah, you were very touched by the scenery, which I was as well. I mean, the night skies were, it was remarkable. Every single shot, there were just these shots of the majestic horses with the sun rising behind them. (laughs) And it brings me to tears even thinking about it, let alone when I was in the theater. Um, But then this woman's story, it's almost like triumphant yet tragic in the end. She's kind of talking about like time just got away from me. She started the work when she was in her early 20s and then she... Yeah, is in her sixties now and just borderline <laughs> obsessive, but but in a positive way, I suppose. Yeah, um, cataloging all the plastic that washes up on the shores. She has like this bo- massive uh, box full of different balloons and orders and sorts them by colors, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so it had an environmentalist message. What I'm saying. Yeah, and we were talking about it afterwards because we knew a decent amount about Sable Island more than the average person. I think it could have done for us without the the very explicit climate change messaging because we've kind of grown up once in a while, as you said, hearing about it. So we know the sand dunes are eroding. We know that the plastic is an issue. Yeah. Um, so seeing it explicitly was almost like kind of banging the message over the head mm-hmm. a little bit. But I think for people who didn't know about it, it would be a very rude awakening. It gave me when people watch, what's that movie about animal cruelty? Um, when people watch movies and they're like converted yes, to veganism, yes. they're converted to like never eating at McDonald's again. Mm-hmm. I feel like this movie would really do that because the first portion of the movie was just beautiful. Solacini. Solacini just showing you this is beautiful. This is nice. But then the last little bit was like, it's not going to be nice much longer. <laughs> and of course, that brings us to the organism of the week. The Sable Island horse. Brown. Mm-hmm. Graceful. Yes. Flowing mane, made of chocolate, this one? No, no, it's just brown. It's just all brown. If you were to have a horse in the future, say Island, wild or otherwise, what color would you want it to be, and what would you name her? It has to be a her, right? I don't think it has to be a her. Okay, him. But... Mine would be white, and it would be called... Glitter. I was going to name mine Luna, and yeah. it was going to be kind of caramely. Yeah, I don't know if you can name horses that aren't like... It has to be a name that an eight-year-old girl would come up with. <laughs> yeah, of course. It can't be like Horace. No. Boris. Yeah. It's going to have to be Luna, Glitter, Sparkle, <laughs> Rainbow. But the Sable Island horses have a sort of dwarfism, island dwarfism, because they have lived on the island for a few hundred ah, years. That's why they look so... They're often called ponies, Sable Island yeah. ponies. And frankly, until this movie, I thought they were ponies. So they're just kind of like slightly dwarfed horses. And they know this because over the years, up until the 60s, people were still taking horses off the island to slaughter or to sell or to tame, Mm -hmm. which I didn't realize that that was that recent. But because they were taken off the island so often, we know that if they have a more normal diet, they grow to full horse size. It's Um, like a bonsai horse. Yeah, exactly. Bringing it back to last week. (laughs) But because they live in this tiny island and only have so much to eat, they generally just stay a certain size and they have no predators on the island. Also, they're obviously not natural. A lot of people consider them a invasive species because they were just brought there from most likely France or another part of Europe, but they were brought there in the 1700s to basically the islands acted as their corral. Then you just take a boat over yeah, to pick them up. They didn't need any fences. Yeah. And there were no... Yeah, because there's no 
predators, they generally just die of their teeth getting worn down by the sand, Ooh. and they can't eat anymore, which is so sad. So they starve. They starve. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's so dark. It, yeah, it did kind of brush over that in the movie. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was just like, oh, old age. But like, you don't just, like, usually there's a cause, and the cause is starvation, which is pretty sad. Um, in the 70s, there were about 300 on the island, but today there's between 450 to 550, depending on the season. There's usually about one death per month, and obviously the population is doing well. It was in the 60s preserved by the government as a, not a national heritage site, but a a natural wildlife preserve. Okay. And so there's some people that are still advocating to take the horses off because it's like they have a huge impact on the environment there, and they're not... Well, they're endemic to this place now, but so beautiful. they are wonderful. And what else? In the 60s, yeah, there was a campaign by school kids to stop slaughtering the horses on the island because they'd been used for dog food up until that point, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. And it worked. The school kids won. The eight-year-old girls rooting for Sparkle won. And yeah, it's been and protected beans. ever since. Um, has there ever been any conflict that you know of between the Sable Island horses? And the seals, <laughs> my other love. No, they're they're they don't interact. interact. Oh. I imagine because have you ever? No, you haven't. I remember once the migration patterns were disturbed for the seals near where I lived, and so they were mating on our beaches. What? Which you they saw don't normally. And the noise, man. Like you saw in the movies, the woman had earmuffs yes. on. It's like sickening. What does it sound like? Like screams, children's screams. Okay, kind of. And it's just really You should have slapped one of them. <laughs> no. They were trying to give birth. Oh, okay. Um, I thought you just meant that was a, the ambient noise they made. No, it was just like a screaming yes. from the birth and the labor. Um, but yeah, we went down to see them once. I think there were a few years where there were seals kind of on the beaches where I lived, which wasn't normal. But yeah, the noises, I imagine, scare off the horses. The horses probably keep to their side of the island. Makes sense. Um but yeah, the seals are the other big megafauna that make an appearance on Sable Island. And other than that, there's 130 species of birds. Or wait, 330 species of birds and 190 plant species. And then the woman is currently trying to document all of the invertebrate, which would be quite the task. Like but insects. she's taken it, yeah, she's taken it upon herself. So Godspeed to Zoe. <laughs> but Come yeah. on the podcast. Yeah, I think that's a quite honest invitation. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not joking. Come on the podcast. <laughs> Usually we're joking and inviting like, I don't even know, Biden. Kanye or Banya. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Kanye or Banya, I don't mind. So yeah, come on the podcast. We'd love to have you. So I'll get started with fossils. Cool. Fossils are a very Solacene concept. Yeah, there's one on our logo. There is one on our logo. How many things are on our logo? There's six things on our logo. And what are they, Alicia? You, a, you drew them. I know. There's two plants kind of twisting together. There's a paint palette. There's the city. Is the city on the logo? Yes. There's a city. There is the fossil, a sun, and I don't know what the sixth thing is. Turbine? Is there a turbine on them? There is a turbine. Anyway, there's two types of fossils, type one and type two. Type 1, this is like the basic one that people know, which is either the remains of the organism or the imprint left from its remains. So it's like mm-hmm. the most famous type of fossil, the one that we have. Um, the one on our logo is an 
It's like a mollusk, right? Yeah. I think it's called an ammonite. Type 2 um, fossil, this is something that was made by the animal while living, which has since hardened into stone. Like footprints. a footprint or something else animals make. What about hair? Would that be like fossilized hair and amber? That would count as type 1 because that, that was a part of the creature. Oh, yeah. okay. So it's something they make. Yeah, something they make okay, I see. that isn't them. Hmm. So like P-O-O, that's something else. Yes. It's called um, coprolite. That's the name for that. So the most common type of fossils are of bones and teeth. I don't know if this is me being incredibly ignorant. I never went through the mandatory for boys dinosaur phase. But I didn't know that dinosaur bones weren't actually bones. I thought they were all bones. But they're pretty much no bone. Fossils, like that kind of fossil, is like all stone. What? Yeah. So basically it's like a mold where let's say it's in the right conditions with the sediment and everything. So like a dinosaur dies and all the tissue wears away, all the soft tissue, and it's just a bone left. And then it gets covered up. But then gradually um, that bone also kind of dissolves essentially and minerals fill the, sp- fill the space. Oh. And there's sometimes there's some dinosaur tissue like DNA left inside. But like it's, not, it's not just bones. It's a rock. Yeah, it's a rock. Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, I guess it's 10 million years. Yeah. Or like millions and millions of years ago. So it makes sense that it wouldn't just but be. But when I looked this up, all the web pages were like, as we all learned in elementary school, fossils are actually. And I was like, I never learned that. No, I never <laughs> learned that either. That's really interesting. Yeah. Thank you for enlightening me, Anne. You're welcome. Um, that's what the solar scene's all about. And that process, it's called mineralization or permineralization. So, yeah, it's basically like, like a mold. Cool. Like, um, I saw this video. It was like, Making a mold of Messi's foot. We know Messi's foot. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of confused, but like, how would that happen? And he puts his foot in a tub of like sludge. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know. Anyway, you've seen the video. I haven't seen that video, no. <laughs> um, another way of preserving, like there's a per- permineralization, another um, process by which fossilization occurs, freezing, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. They found like bison. They found a woolly rhino. They found these things usually in like Siberia. Or the Yukon. Just a couple of years ago, they found a big thing in the Yukon. So I think that's another reason we should go there. Um, and there's also just like the casting, which is when things just get impressed on the rock. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also like maybe my favorite type of fossil. Like if we were to ever own a fossil, like one from Animal Crossing, mm-hmm. that's what it would be. It would be like a leaf or the, the Solacene shell, like the ammonite shell, just on a rock. I think those are cool and those are the ones I hunted once on a beach mm-hmm. and I always talk about that because it was very fun so some interesting things that have been found because of fossils there was this huge millipede found in Nova Scotia it's the first of two Nova Scotia connections I have today it was seven and a half meters oh I don't like that yeah that's how long it used to be don't like that oh. um, humans have been discovering fossils for a very long time and you mentioned the amber things do you like amber? I love amber. I put it on my list of things I liked last week. The list of things you... Oh, the textures. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I didn't know if you just made a list outside of the podcast. <laughs> um, so yeah, there were some stats about like humans have been using that as jewelry for like very, very long time. It's mm-hmm. like that bone, those are the, that was the earliest like ornaments yeah. that we used, which is kind of cool. So for something to be classified as a fossil, do you want to guess how old it has to be? 
over 100 years old, maybe? No, it's roughly over like 10,000 years old. Really? Yeah. So like, otherwise it's like just... 12,000. So pretty much it's the start of the, the Holocene, the current um, mm. epoch. And again, like earlier I mentioned fossils, it's a very Holocene concept. Why? I had because a few connections. in the future. Yeah, so that's let's, true. Let's talk about that. So it's to us very implicit perhaps, but what I think the connection is, is that fossils and artifacts that you might find from past societies or from past plants. One, as you mentioned, the millipede, it makes you marvel at the power and grandeur of nature. I mean, without, if you don't see a huge whale hanging or dinosaur bones assembled in a museum, it's like you have the idea of how big they were, but then when you see it, like all laid out, it really makes you respect and kind of beholden to like nature as the power that it is. I also think the reason that fossils are so important is because dinosaurs, the reason that they're so fascinating to kids is like they're extinct. Yeah. And they didn't just go out calmly. They went out with a bang. Fiery boys. But I think a connection to the work we're trying to do is for 10 million years before the asteroid, the populations were declining due to overpopulation and a bunch of different reasons. So like just natural climate change was impacting them. It was getting too mm -hmm. warm and so mm -hmm. on. That was 10 million years. Whereas in an, about a thousand years. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, I feel like a thousand is too much, but since the um, industrial revolution, which is a tiny time period, we have triggered a mass extinction, which is just so unnatural compared to the 10 million mass extinctions that have been happening in the past. Yeah, I was basically thinking that, but learning like time frames, even understanding these numbers, it's kind of mm -hmm. like when people talk about money and they'll be like, well, we think millions a lot, but a billion is like, you could count, you know, one number every second and you wouldn't reach a billion. You know, when people talk about it yeah. like that, it's like, yeah, we get it. It's a lot. Um, but with time, we don't, I feel like it's, it's a lot harder to consider that. And maybe most people off the top of their heads wouldn't be able to tell you how old is the planet? How old is the species? When was that um, big asteroid? You know, mm -hmm. when were these dinosaurs? So I think learning those time frames from a young age gives you more of a perspective geared towards sustainability in general, actually. Yeah. Um, but also it's just like fossil fuels. How old is that coal? Like when was it made? Like you get more of an appreciation, I suppose, like, this old growth forest, what does that mean? You know, like, um, it kind of informs your decision making to an extent. And I also think, as you said, it, con it contextualizes human impact, like when mm -hmm. you learn about previous mass extinctions and, and stuff like that. Yeah, certainly. And it makes you feel kind of bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in a cool way, because you're looking at a dinosaur and you're like, oh, darn. Rest in peace. Yeah. <laughs> Pieces. I also think that you talked about the wonder, like the millipede. We, we talk a lot about the frontier, like um, restoring the frontier mindset, the wilderness to an extent in the Solocene. But we're also not going to just forget everything that we know about, yeah, of the, about the current biosphere. In fact, we're going to be learning more and more. So in that regard, there'll be less of a, of a scientific frontier all the time. And we're also going to be like exploring space and like all that fun stuff. So I think that the distant um, paleontological past whatever like that field um is in a, in a sense of frontier because we don't know much 
we know a lot what's going on today, but we don't know much about what's happening in the distant past. Yeah. And I also think just from like a, from like a, I don't know, foundational perspective, the solar scene, some imagined future, you know, the Pleistocene, for instance, some, in the, in the eyes of most people, imagined uh, past. There's like a symmetry there is what I'm saying. Yeah, and this is where I'm going to get into archaeology a little bit, is that up until very, very recently, like five, ten years, we've been modeling climate situations. It's like, if we do this, we're going to have a disaster. If we do this, it's going to be one degree of warming and so on. Um, but it wouldn't be contextualized in like the human realm. It would just be like, the rains are going to come, the water is going to rise. But we literally have all these examples of smaller scale changes all throughout human and natural history that can be highly informative to our response and give life to these models of like, okay, when Easter Island, they overfarmed and the land was so depleted that everyone died off or had to escape. Like, this is how they responded. This is how it changed culture. Yeah. And it kind of gives you a completely foundational in like the human experience. It can give, inform these yeah. pathways. I, I read something once. It was like, I don't quote me because this is very paraphrased. I'm not 100% sure it was accurate, but it was like the biggest commonality between like empires, human empires through history as they've fallen has been like soil depletion mm-hmm. or something like that or like erosion. Yeah. It's kind of funny. So it's, often seen as, yeah, society and human nature are the driving causes of these societies falling, yeah, up and downs, yeah. But really, it's just, it's going to all be informed by nature. But the way we tell it in stories and we mythologize it is going to be very human-centric because we don't have the, or they didn't have the words and the numbers to yeah. back up, okay, also, the soil was depleted. As you talked about a lot in the storytelling semester, humans make for much better stories than do <laughs> soils. Yeah, exactly. But then when we were in Delphi, it's like, well, there was this landslide that covered all of their stuff. It's like, how did they react? And how did they adapt to these like kind of horrible environmental conditions? And then if you're exposed to these stories and like true stories, you can then form your own opinions. Hope that was coherent. <laughs> I was thinking of like a Jerry Seinfeld bit about dinosaurs. Okay. Not, not to just completely disregard everything you said. <laughs> um, we can we can add on to that. But it was like, why do dinosaurs always roam? Because I feel like that's what always people say. It's like back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. Yeah, there's never yeah. any other verb there. Yeah, I don't know why they always roam. Back when they roamed the earth, and I feel like they roam more than other creatures. Yeah. Trode it's like the earth. alligators prowl. Dinosaurs roam. Yeah. Found something there. <laughs> Another solar scene relevance is that, like, learning about the ancient natures, as you might say, the ancient climate, climate, all that kind of thing, like pre humans, what I'm saying, it makes you consider a world without humans. Yeah. And I don't, I don't mean that in like a misanthropic um, perspective, like, Oh, we're a poison. The earth will be so like not like that because so is seen as is anything but uh, misanthropic. It's community based, in fact. But I just mean, well, for one thing, it can it can help ease the eco anxiety. I think that a lot of people feel. I don't feel it, but a lot of people feel it. 
wherein you can kind of look at these grand timescales in which human humanity is just a blink or whatever and be like, wow, well, everything seemed to recover just fine from this big meteor, massive volcanoes, floods, ice age, that kind of thing. So things will be fine after we stop, you know, polluting or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I also think that a world without humans, that wilderness, it gives us a North Star. However, like, obviously it's unattainable, but, you know, a North Star to, to try and restore wilderness to, basically. Yeah. Oh, and I also think just like knowing about this stuff, seeing things not just spatially, but also like in terms of time, it's it's like another layer of thought and information and imagination just when you're traversing nature. Like for instance, in I think it was middle school, one of the teachers casually mentioned like in Nova Scotia, oh, you see those big rocks, like those massive rock formations, let's say beside a highway or something, and they have these deep grooves in them. A lot of that is from glaciers during the ice age which came and were like dragging rocks underneath and mm -hmm. so they they were carving into these big like the bedrock and that kind of thing and that weirdly stuck with me so now like every time i identify one of those in nova scotia i'm like oh that's from that kind of cool yeah and i just think that most of our thought um is it's wholesome and it's like educational when it's like scientific like this so if we had more of these contextual like connect the dots we could walk around and be like oh, that's uh, this type of fungi. It was around since this. Or even like it evolved, it diverged on the evolutionary path or whatever from humans or from monkey. I don't know where fungi came from, but <laughs> I don't think they came from humans. No, I don't think they came from humans either. But <laughs> that's definitely interesting. Like I think... at one point we shared a common branch though, right? Yeah. I think contextualizing things in the evolutionary history is really inspiring for people to be a bit more reverent to the nature of like yeah this tree is literally tree rings that's another one like yeah. it's, it's a common one everybody knows about it they're like oh tree rings they do this every you know when they're growing um and it's a cool thing because people can you talk about it yeah oh did you know about tree rings pretty neat also next week we should talk about nature-based practices of humans that have gone out of style that we can bring back for the solo scene like not inventing new ones but things that we used to do, they were beautiful, sustainable, tactile, maybe all three, that we don't do now, and bring them back for the solo scene. Yeah, I like that. I was going to talk a bit about museums and how it's like, oh, they just would use these cool long pipes to track the water from here to here. It's like these very natural processes that were like slightly augmented by human intuition that we can see displayed in museums. What do you mean? Tra tracking the water pipes? I just made that up. I oh. don't know. But it's like how... <laughs> Okay. Sounds Civilizations cool. have been like engineering and I was thinking of kind of irrigation systems oh, that yeah, are very yeah. old. Um, how people have been living harmoniously with nature, but not just like in harmony with nature as in there's out in the woods with nothing. Like they've been building things and creating things out of clay or out of wood to help <laughs> augment the human experience. Um, and it and lasted for many, many years. Exactly. It's like when we were in this museum, there was like prehistoric artifacts and it's just like in your mind you're like oh prehistoric but then when you see the actual time frame it's like that's just fifteen thousand years ago <laughs> like that doesn't even make any sense and i was reading a book on the history of god and divinities in society and it's like some of this art is just older than i can even conceptualize within caves and there's these 
like religious passageways that had been carved into mountains. And it's like people have been doing these things for so long without the help of AI, without the help of plastics or motors. It's like we are very powerful people, but we kind of don't give ourselves enough credit because we have so many easier ways to do things. Good point. I was thinking in the solo scene about how kids have like the Boy Scouts, the Girl Guides, as we talked about them. don't remember what you renamed them. It was something cool, though. something quirky. Um, like adults should should do that kind of thing. I yeah. feel like it's it's viewed as kind of lame in today's culture for for an adult to be like, I'm in a bird watching club. But really, it's kind of cool. I think it's pretty so cool. I was thinking about that from like a, a paleontology or even archaeology um, perspective, where it's like you have your geology club that you're going to go meet with, and maybe you search for fossils. Obviously, this is very like vocation dependent. Mm-hmm. But I was just trying to think of ways that this field has a presence in the Zoocene. So it's like you can go on field trips. Um, you can use your little dentistry tools to like <laughs> scrape away at the rocks and stuff. Yeah. Or you could just be that guy who can identify different rocks. Yeah. And it's like you have a collection of quartz. You know Why what not? I mean? Like I feel like that was always that kid. But yeah. it's hard to find them in, in adulthood. <laughs> or like geodes. They have a whole room full of geodes. Mm-hmm. And you don't really know why, but they're nice. So it's like uh, <laughs> geodes. I was also thinking that people could be maybe a little bit more um, attentive with regards to like scientific developments in this. So I was reading about carbon dating, and it's like there's just been some some giant like recalibrations because of uh, breakthroughs in the technology or something like that, where basically a lot a lot of fossils that they thought were this old is actually this old, like slightly younger or, or maybe slightly older, but I think slightly younger. But in any case, like these kind of things, we're not really aware of them happening. And you might say, well, why should we care? But really it's about as relevant to our daily life as is like most of the celebrity stuff that people read about or like even most of the politics that people read about. Yeah. So I think if we were kind of in the solo scene, um, periodically checking up on science journal or like nature, instead of or or in correspondence with um the new york times something like that yeah and obviously i think in the cool solar scene like tech museum there's augmented reality and virtual reality like prehistoric tours yeah. so you can go and fly with a pterodactyl you can roam like with the dinosaurs yeah that's what it would be called roaming with the dinosaurs man that's original yeah <laughs> <laughs> i only had one more thing i wanted to talk about in the context of archaeology and paleontology this episode is that i was kind of getting to it before but that every object has a natural history it's like and in the soul scene i think that'll be a lot more we're just aware of it it's like yeah this microphone has a natural history and that it came all from the earth like we have separated ourselves so far from nature that we don't appreciate the fact that metals are natural and plastics are like as you said last week technically natural like they come from the oil which came from the dinosaurs and i think in the meantime between now and the solar scene educating people on that through museums and through education is really useful and museums are at the forefront of climate education today because they have so many cool engaging things whereas classrooms or even tv shows don't have that yeah capacity well, tv shows are indoors like yeah you're sitting down indoors museums you're moving around kind yeah. of resembles nature on the inside just like a mm-hmm. a willy wonka's version of nature it's kind of what it is yeah and it makes you ask questions there was a 
industrial museum by my house and it's like I don't like cars as everyone knows <laughs> but it made me ask questions about these cars and how they worked so long ago in the trains and it was just it made you think well where did they get this metal from back then it's like well they would mine it it's like well how would they mine it and it was just it would make you ask questions in a way that seeing a car on the street or seeing a old train in a movie wouldn't and I think that's really important in fighting climate change is like contextualizing everything in climate and not in like an annoying way of like Someone's eating their breakfast. You're like, well, you know that that was imported from here and here yeah. and here. It's like, yeah. but also it doesn't have to be just explicit education. Like, I think museums are great, mm-hmm. but also much of that just comes from being. Mm-hmm. It just comes from growing up in a world where you see a table being made in your town, and then yourself eating on that table, and then you naturally know, if not the exact tree, roughly the forest where the table came from. Like, we have no idea for hours. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I have four more things to talk about. So the first one, I was kind of curious about, again, kind of showing my ignorance, but that's what I do on this podcast, (laughs) is solar scene. What does that refer to? It's a good question. What do you think? Well, I know what it refers to. Okay. (laughs) We like the different epochs, the Holocene, the Plasticine, the Crustaceous period, and so on. And so... a period, though. Okay. Sorry. Basically, I, I listed out <laughs> the things like Kingdom Phylum Class Order Family Genus Species, but for time periods, geological time periods. Yeah. Do you want to guess what the biggest one is called? Like for the biggest amount of time? I don't know. You tell me. Eon. An eon. Okay. Then there's an era. Then there's a period. Cretaceous, Crustaceous, yes. as you like to say. Then there's an epoch. Our current one being the Holocene. I don't really like that Anthropocene. Like that's not real, right? That's no. just like a cultural thing. When yeah. I looked it up, it said, like, there's debate between science. And I was like, there's no debate. It's just like BuzzFeed wants to call it Anthropocene. Scientists know what it actually is. Because mm-hmm. the Holocene is, is, like, in its infancy. Yeah, it's like a couple thousand years old. A couple thousand? Well, tell me. <laughs> um, it's like 11,700 years ago. Okay. So, as you say, it followed the Pleistocene and specifically is marked by, like, the end of the last um, glacial period. Mm-hmm. So very, very young in terms of... Epochs. Epoch. Yeah, yeah, it's young. Um, and then there's a sub-epoch, and then there's an age. Okay. I think those two might be slightly synonymous. but um, And the current age is called the Megalayan Age. So that's like, when are we living? Megalayan Age. Like That's what you'd say. Cool. And that's roughly like the last 4,200 years. It started with like a big two-century drought or something like that. So Solocene, next... Epoch, but hopefully it won't take that long to reach there. We're, yeah. just, we're not scientists. We're just yeah. It's well, a nice name. Yeah, we took the ending of the epoch Holocene and then add solar because it's sun, solar, yeah. green. I feel like it's not that deep that it needs to be explained <laughs> that much. Um, also, I was curious about who is naming all this, like who is numbering it, and it's the International Commission on Stratigraphy. So that could just be made up. I don't know. Yeah. But we'll I just thought, because it was like this Megalayan age, like that's a is a recent naming. It was only like five years ago that they were like, "This is a Megalayan," <laughs> and everyone's like, "What?" What? <laughs> so they just kind of said it, and now we have to go by it. But also, I think for next week, like we mentioned, obviously in the nature semester, we've been talking a lot more about organisms than before. The millipede. I have a couple cool evolutions to close on, also, um, and the organism organism of the week is still a weekly staple. But I think next week we should talk about like maybe each pick an organism or two and talk about lifespan 
Okay. Like, like describe the whole life cycle of a thing. Okay. Organisms like of the week. Yeah, organisms for sure. Cool. I feel like that would be. We could. It's rich for for discussion. Um, we kind of mentioned it in the zine. Shout out to the zine. If you're interested in what we have to say and you want to read it or look at it, we have a handmade zine that you can buy through the link in the description. And should I? No, I'm not going to spoil what's inside. But there's a creature <laughs> who features prominently. We talk about that life cycle. Yeah. Uh, next thing is tree houses. I just wanted to mention them. I don't know why this week's research kind of made me think about tree houses. I don't know either. But tree houses are cool, right? They're cool. Yeah. I like them. I do think that tree houses are, are probably overrepresented in media. Absolutely. It's like every young boy in a in a movie or TV show, well, he's going to go to his tree house and it's his hangout spot. But in reality, it's like how many people have tree houses? Yeah. I know you did, but. Most people don't, I don't think. Yeah, I think we should definitely talk about tree houses next week. Oh, talk more about them? Yeah. Okay. I I was just thinking, like, I would mention it now, like, tree houses, that cool? No, let's talk about tree houses in the solo scene. I just think humans should, <laughs> well, humans should climb more, but we'll talk yeah. about that next week. Um, and lastly, yeah, I wanted to close on some cool evolutions. I had a couple. One is the tripod fish. So it's a it's a deep sea fish mm-hmm. which has like this this bony it's called like a bony protrusion i didn't really want to know much more about that but it looks <laughs> like this big stick basically coming out the underside of it and it anchors this into the sand into the ocean floor mm-hmm. um, and then when the current comes it's it's anchored so it stays in spots opens its mouth and catches all the prey that are caught in the current why not well that was kind of cool it's very cool and the second one is the spotted salamander Nova Scotian, and it also has a Nova Scotian connection because this evolution was found by a scientist at Dalhousie University. Wow. Shout out to the institution that gave us an undergrad. <laughs> Basically, the spotted salamander, they lay their eggs in, in ponds, but they prefer ponds that don't have fish or don't have many fish. Understandable. Because obviously they're going to eat the eggs. Mm-hmm. But the problem with such ponds is that basically the, the fewer fish there are, um, in general, the less oxygen there is. Mm-hmm. So, do, wait, do you know this? Do you know what I'm about to say? No, you go for oh, it. Okay. It's just you were going like, mm-hmm. Like you were kind of like <laughs> waiting for me to make a mistake and then you'd be like, oh, actually it's this. But the, the embryos, the eggs, have a symbiotic relationship with algae. So basically algae, of course, is photosynthetic. So it, it produces photosynthesis for the eggs while the eggs give them like waste or like some of the nitrogen from their waste and co2 and that kind of thing but the algae lives inside the hmm. the cell of the egg wow so it's it's kind of like an animal that does photosynthesis because it's inside it that's really cool yeah and also um they're not sure how the algae gets in there but they found it they found some in the mothers yeah so they think it's like passed passed through like that it's really interesting it is cool right yeah sounds I like mean, a pokemon thing I was yeah. going to mention a Pokemon evolution and just slip it in. No. Like, oh, when Squirtle turns into Blastoise, and then, but I feel like that would have been too childish. Maybe me mentioning it has already, <laughs> it's already done that. Oh, do you want to know where they live? The algae is found in the cell, like location-wise. You tell me. Beside the mitochondria. There's neighbors? Yeah. The powerhouse of the cell and the photosynthesis powerhouse. Every article I read about this said powerhouse of the cell. I did a control F. They always said that. You have to. Yeah. It's similar it's, it's like to dinosaurs roaming. roaming. Yeah. Dinosaurs roam, mitochondria, powerhouses. 
Um, so yeah, that was the three things. Just one one final um, note that I read. I was looking at like quotes about paleontology or quotes about fossils online, and I found this thing which says, "I'll just read it, and then that'll be the close of the episode." Sounds good. So it's <laughs> advice from a fossil: stay rock solid, learn from the past, don't fall apart under pressure. It's okay to be sedimental. Make a good impression. <laughs>